You know, it's sad that we, as a country, don't really appreciate, I don't believe, what these people have fought for. Now, I know there are some, and I know there are many, in fact, that believe this and are truly grateful for our freedoms, but I think there is a progressive nature in some of our country that is trying to destroy that. And we need to stand strong for our people, for our country. We need to live free and not be allow, not allow that progressive nature to come in and to take away what many have died for. Amen? And it's not that our source of ourself is in our country, but I think we need to stand for our country because we, this country has done a lot for this world and will continue to do a lot, I believe, I pray. So let's stand strong for America and let's not be ashamed of saying that it's under God we serve and we live. Amen? Amen. Well, thank you for being here today. We've been talking about the parables of Jesus. And the last week we talked about um, the cost of what it is to follow Jesus. That's not a parable, that's a fact. And today I want to talk about another related topic. It's not a parable, it's another fact of God's word. And um, I find that these are very closely related and very timely teachings of Jesus that really deserve a little extra time. So it may not be a parable, but it fits right in with the parables we've been talking about. Today we're going to discuss a a very interesting and somewhat confusing, I believe, uncharacteristically strong remark, rebuke of Jesus that Jesus spoke to his one of his best disciples. And I believe as we dig into this that we're going to find it to be very relevant and helpful for us in many areas as well. So we're going to discover today how Jesus dealt with the temptation that he felt coming from both Satan and from men. The title of our sermon today is very simple. Get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, Satan. I think we all agree that God is good, right? I think we all agree that he stands for everything that is beyond good. We can't even begin to comprehend the goodness and the greatness that God stands for. At the same time, it's totally amazing that we can't understand the evil that our enemy stands for. Just as we can't comprehend God's goodness, we really can't comprehend God's or Satan's evil. I mean, we saw some of it this past week in that shooting in that elementary school. That's evil, folks. That is just pure evil. I don't know how they're to describe it other than the fact that Satan dwelt inside that young man that would make him go, first of all, shoot his grandmother. Beyond description. And then walk into that elementary school and just do what he did. That's, I'm sorry, that's just evil. We can't blame it on anything else other than that. We need to know that Satan is totally opposed to the will of God in every way and in every context. Everything that God is for, Satan is against. 
And it's also interesting to know that whatever God does on earth, he accomplishes through people. Now, that's interesting that why God would trust us. <laughs> why would he trust me? Why would he trust you with doing some of the greatest things that he wants to have happen? That's an interesting dilemma. And it's also important to know that Satan knows that as well. That Satan knows that God is trusting us with doing the things that bring about his will in this life. That's why Satan is so against you. That's why he's so against me. If you've been tested, if you've been attacked, know what it's about. Know that you have an enemy that is out to oppose everything that's in you that is godly. I think I can say it very clearly and very simply this way, that Satan's agenda does not line up with God's agenda. Satan's agenda does not line up with God's agenda in any way whatsoever. Totally opposite. So today I want to talk about how Jesus dealt with this, how he dealt with the temptation of what Satan was trying to bring against him. So I want to read some passages here that are, this is pretext, this is context. In Matthew chapter 16, if you have your Bible, I would, open, I would ask you to open your Bible up or it'll be on the screen. Um, would you stand with me as you read God's word? Matthew 16, beginning at verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the son of man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But Jesus says, what about you? Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And I read all this because I want to set the context for the text. Because Jesus certainly is a special man in the lives of his disciples. No one ever has lived like Christ. He is a phenomenon in the eyes of his disciples and in the eyes of the world. And up to this point in time, however, remain standing if you would, up to this point in time, the disciples may have recognized who Jesus was, but I don't think they had any idea of his true mission on earth. They recognized he was a son of God. They just said it. Peter said it. And if Peter said it, I got to assume that the rest of the disciples also understood that and believed it. Peter just was bold enough to say it. That's just Peter's personality. But we're going to see here that Jesus is preparing the disciples now in the text that we're going to read in a minute as to what the Messiah's true mission is on earth. So we need to try to get into the mindset of the disciples for a minute here today. We need to put away our historical context and recognize that the disciples were living in the moment. They didn't really understand what Jesus' purpose on life was. They knew who he was. They've been walking with him now for a bit of time. But they just didn't know. They didn't have the history of the Bible. They didn't have it in written form. 
So Jesus begins now to describe to them what is going to happen to him. So this is our text, Matthew chapter 16, beginning at verse 21. He says, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day raised to life. Here's Peter. (laughs) Here's Peter. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Let's pray. Father, help us to understand what is being said here. Help us to truly grasp this concept of what you have in store for us. And help us to get our minds off of our earthly mindset and onto your mindset that we can accomplish the will that you've asked us to do. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Get behind me, Satan. Seems like a pretty harsh thing for Jesus to say. Especially addressing Peter, right? His most devout disciple. Jesus had just given Peter much praise and much accolade and much authority in the fact that Peter was the first to recognize who Jesus was. That Peter was the one that spoke up for the disciples and said, Jesus, you are who you are. You are the Messiah. You are the son of the living God. That Jesus was planning for Peter to be very significant in the building of the church. I think all the disciples were saying what Peter saw, what, what Peter, thinking what Peter said. And they were thinking that they had plans for Jesus. They had plans in their mind for what they wanted Jesus to do. Especially after they had heard all these very positive things that Jesus had said to them. So I'm just trying to imagine what they were thinking. What would you have been thinking if you were walking down that road that day with Jesus and Jesus was said those things to you about who he was and all the things that he said about the church that was going to be built. And then he goes right into a teaching that says, guys, I'm going to die. <laughs> I'm going to die. I think would leave us all a little bit confused, right? And so for Jesus to say something as direct and as forceful as he did to Peter to get behind me, Satan, is pretty surprising to them, I think. Why did Jesus say this? What was it that Peter did that deserved such a harsh rebuke? Well, I think we're going to answer these questions, and I think as we answer these questions, we're going to see some direct applications for our life. So there's four things that I want us to highlight today that will help us understand this verse. Number one, Jesus explains what must happen. So look again at verse 21. Verse 21 says, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day raised to life. So three things must happen if Jesus is going to accomplish his earthly mission that his disciples didn't understand, but they needed to. First thing, he must go to Jerusalem and suffer at the hands of the Jewish religious leaders. Did you hear that? 
at the religious leaders. Jesus must suffer at the hands of those that claim to be religious. You know, I, I don't like to be called religious. I can be very religious about my golf game and have nothing to do with Christ. Right? I can be very serious, very religious about the things that I want to do in life, about my sports teams that I follow, or whatever else it is. I can be very religious about a lot of things that have nothing to do with God. These religious leaders were very religious about some things. Had nothing to do with God. Had everything to do with themselves. The second thing that must happen to Jesus is that he must be killed. He must be killed. And then thirdly, he must be raised to life on the third day. You know, you would think that going to Jerusalem, the center of the Jewish faith, would have been a safe place for Jesus to go. It would have been a welcoming place for him to go, you would think. But it turns out to be just the opposite. But it was something Jesus had to do. And so Jesus was trying to explain to his disciples what had to happen, that there was really no choice in the matter, that he understood, Jesus understood, that these three things, if they didn't happen, there would be no salvation for mankind. And that his earthly mission would be a waste of time if Jesus didn't follow through on this. The plan to redeem mankind depended upon Jesus' obedience to go through the plan that was laid out for him from the beginning of time. Hmm, that's really interesting. So it appears that he had no choice, but I think this is very important that we understand this. But he did have a choice. Freedom is not free, and neither is salvation. If he was going to accomplish his mission on earth to redeem mankind, he had no choice. That was the road he had to walk. But yet, here's the amazing thing about it. This is why redemption is so amazing, and this is why we should never, ever take it for granted, is because Jesus made the choice willingly to do what he had to do. He could have bailed out. He could have abandoned the plan at any time. There was nothing that was making him do this other than his love for his father and his love for you and me. So I, I can just imagine why God is so offended at those that take things of, of him so flippantly and so nonchalantly because we have no appreciation for truly what he gave up and what he did, and he did it at his choice. I hope we can appreciate especially on this day that, we're, that we are remembering those that have gone before us, that we can appreciate the fact that Jesus willingly fought the fight. But he did so in order to redeem mankind because he paid the price of sin. And because of that, we have salvation today. So the disciples, though, in, this, in the moment that they're in, that they're walking on that day, they were not prepared for this new revelation of the Messiah's purpose. Though they understood the words, they simply could not reconcile his view of a conquering Messiah to be suffer, to have to suffer what he was said he was going to have to suffer and then to die on a cross. 
Remember, the cross then means differently than what we think the cross means today. We wear the cross around the necklace and as, around our, as jewelry, and we think it's kind of just a nice thing to wear. And thank the Lord for the meaning of the cross, for what we have. But at the, at the cross then, there was nothing glorious about a cross. The cross was evil. The cross was what the Romans used to kill people on, people that it was a, it was a horrific death, a torturous death. We might talk about this next week as to really what it means to take up your cross and follow Jesus because that has a whole different meaning on it than what we think it is today. That's next week. So Peter naturally sees things the only way that he can at the time through his own agenda and being a type A personality that he was, he felt it was up to him to take matter in his, into his own hands. So what does Peter do? Peter rebukes Jesus. Verse 22, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. I can just see Peter taking Jesus by the shoulder, kind of said, come on, Jesus, let's take a little walk. Let me tell you the way it really is. There's no way that's going to happen to you. Do you understand who you are? We just told you you were the Messiah and you agreed with it. So why in the world do you think that you have to die? And so Peter's saying, Jesus, you know, you really have a bad mindset going on here. Come on, we need to think better about yourself. <laughs> and, and, you know, Peter's really thinking he's doing Jesus a favor because he's thinking that he's helping him see life the way Peter wants him to see life. What Peter was really saying here is that he was trying to protect Jesus from his own mindset of failure. That's what Peter was trying to do. He was trying to go to Jesus and say, you know, you're a little bit wrong here. I know you're great. I know you're the God. I know you're the Messiah, but let me help you out. <laughs> I mean, we could laugh at that, but, in, but that's what Peter was thinking. I, I can't, why would he say that otherwise? He really believed what he was saying was the right thing, that he said, Jesus, no, you're not going to die because we need you. What he really was saying is that Peter was saying, I don't want this to happen. I don't want this to happen because it won't work out in my plans. I have plans for you, Jesus. It's not going to be good for you or for me if you die. So let's just get that mindset out of our mind, right? Let's just forget about that. Peter did not have his mind set on the things that God has had the minds of Jesus set on. Instead, his mind was on the things of men. His earthly values is what Peter was going after here. Peter had a plan. You know, think about it. Peter's in his mind thinking Jesus is going to be the, he's the Messiah. He's going to set up an earthly kingdom. I'm kind of his number one hand, right-hand man here. So what does that mean for me? That means I'm going to be second in power. I mean, Peter had this thing going through his mind. Remember, they're just people. He's just as human as you and I are. And we have bad thoughts. We have agendas. Peter had an agenda that he was going to be a powerful man in the kingdom because he was Jesus' best friend. And all of a sudden, his best friend now was starting to talk fatalistically, like, I'm going to die. And Peter says, no, you're not going to die because you're going to mess up my plans. <laughs> Unknowingly, Peter was speaking the very words of Satan. Think about that. Unknowingly, Peter was saying the same thing that Satan had said. 
the point here is that I want us to realize that these disciples are human, just like you and I are human, and we can get our agendas messed up. We can get ourselves turned around backwards, thinking that we're doing the right thing, thinking that we're on God's side, thinking that we're helping him out, only to find out that we're a little bit off base. So, number three, what was Jesus' response to Peter? Jesus turned to him and he said, Peter, get behind me, Satan. Get behind me. This is, a quite, this is quite a drastic response for Jesus to say to Peter. Jesus understood that Peter was speaking the same thing that Satan had spoke earlier. Earlier in Jesus' life, when he first began his ministry, we know what happened. Jesus, after he was water baptized by John the Baptist, he was then taken into the desert by the Holy Spirit for 40 days of fasting and testing, right, and prayer. And in this time, this is what happened. Luke chapter 4, verses 5 through 8. And the devil, taking Jesus up unto a high mountain, showed unto him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said unto him, All this power will I give thee, and the glory of them, for that is delivered unto me, to whom, whomever I will give it. Verse 7, If thou therefore will worship me, all, th- all shall be thine. And Jesus answered and said unto him the big words, Get thee behind me, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. Does that sound at all like what Peter was just saying to Jesus? At all, maybe? You see, what was Satan doing here? Satan was tempting Jesus to take the easy way out. He was testing Jesus. He was tempting him to take the easy way out. And if Jesus would have taken the bait this would have resulted in Jesus from going to the cross and legitimately gaining back what Jesus, what what his mission was. You see, when Adam and Eve sinned, they gave all the rights that God had given them to control and have dominion over the world, they gave them to Satan. The only way Jesus could get those back was to come and pay the price of the sin penalty. And then he would earn those back. And Satan knew that. And Satan didn't want him to do this. So Satan was doing everything he could to keep Jesus from legitimately earning back the authority that Adam and Eve had have given them. Jesus wasn't there for a shortcut. He wasn't there to find an easy solution. And that easy solution would have failed. Jesus understood his mission. And he knew what it was very clearly. He was there to complete the mission once and for all. And here's the key, no matter how hard it was. No matter how hard it was going to be for him to walk that walk, Jesus knew that he had a mission. So what do we get from this? Satan's temptations always result in failure. Satan's temptations always result in failure, without exception. Without exception. He's never your friend Satan never comes to you giving you a better way to accomplish God's plan. Jesus knew that everything that Satan was saying was deceptive. And he knew that Satan was wanting him to renounce his godhood in his manhood and thus not go to the cross. Jesus understood that. However, Peter and the disciples didn't understand it. They weren't quite there. 
Peter unknowingly was saying the same thing to Jesus. He was, he was being used by Satan, and he didn't even know it. Man, that makes me stop a minute and think. Can this happen to me? Can I be used of Satan too and not know it? Peter had the wrong perspective of God's plan for Christ's suffering and his death. He just didn't understand it. So Jesus had to rebuke him to get him back on track. And it took a direct and immediate response from Jesus to shock Peter, to really just kind of blow his hair back, rock his boat, and say, Peter, you're being like Satan. Get behind me. Stop it. You're being a stumbling block. And this takes me to point four, verse 23. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Now, I'm sure that in Peter's mind that he was very genuine. I'm sure that, G- that Peter loved Jesus. I don't think there was anything here at all that Peter did not love the Lord. I think he was fully committed to Jesus. I think he would have died for him at that moment if he could have. But we all know what happened to Peter. But he was very committed. However, he was human. Here's the, here's the point, guys. If our agenda doesn't agree with God's agenda, then it's opposed to it. If our agenda doesn't agree with God's agenda, there's no middle ground. There's no gray area. We either are in agreement with God's agenda, agenda or we're opposed to it. Anything that is opposed to God's agenda is part of Satan's agenda. Anything that's part of God or Satan's is opposed to God. Thus, it becomes a stumbling block to the cause of Christ. We've got to think about what that means a little bit. It becomes a stumbling block to the cause of Christ. In my own sense of being, of well-doing, if I'm careful, if I don't keep my mind set on what God wants me to be focused on, I can actually be opposite. I can actually be a stumbling block. I can actually be a problem in the kingdom of God. You know, it's interesting that why would this be, um, why would this matter to Jesus? Think about this for a minute. Why would this matter to Jesus? Because we have to realize that Jesus was fully human and fully divine at the same time. That means he was fully God and he was fully man. He could be tempted. That's why his sacrifice was perfect, because he could be tempted. And he had to be able to deal with temptation the way we have to deal with temptation. Jesus knew that his mission was to literally go through hell on earth to save humanity from having an eternal destination in hell. It was going to be that severe for Christ, and he knew that. He understood it completely, what it was going to be required of him to be the Son of God and to be at the same time to be a man, and he understood the agony and the intense pain that would, become, that would come to him beyond description that it would require of him to complete the sacrifice. And even though he saw the joy in it, because and the joy would be us, that our salvation, our, we would bring him joy, even though he saw that, he still understood and anticipated the agony that lied ahead for him. So the last thing Jesus needed in his manhood was to have a temptation to take a shortcut. The last thing he needed was one of his best friends to come to him and say, come on, Jesus, you don't have to do that. There's got to be another way. There's got to be an easier way. 
Jesus understood temptation, and this is what I want us to get out of it. The way he dealt with temptation was very directly and very forcefully. And therefore, he had to say to him, get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me. You're not doing what I need to, you're not being what I need right now in my life, Peter. You're not really helping me now. You're hurting me because you're giving me a temptation that is not from our Father. Even though you recognize I'm from the Father, even though you recognize I'm the Messiah, you're acting in a wrong manner, Peter, and I don't need this in my life right now. Recognize the humanity of Jesus. We sometimes don't recognize the fact that he had to deal with things like you and I deal with things. We have to recognize how important it is to take captive the thoughts in our mind. Everything that comes in your mind, you don't have to think about. Everything that comes in your mind, you don't have to speak it. You can take it captive and you can dwell on it and say, no, that's not of God. I'm not going to deal with that and I'm going I'm to take it captive and I'm going to say, get thee behind me, Satan, because it is not what God wants me to do. And that's the lesson that we can get out of this today. So is it possible for us to be a stumbling block as Peter was to Christ. Is it possible? Do we advertently or inadvertently sometimes mess up God's plan in our lives because we're looking for the easy way around things? Hmm. You see, sometimes God asks us to do some things that are hard, some things that we don't understand. Why, God? Why would you ask me to do that? I don't understand that. I don't understand why you're putting this in front of me. Why? And when those times come, what is our reaction? Are are we looking to be used of God no matter what the cost is? Or are we looking for excuses as to why we can't do that? Or more likely, why we won't do what we're being asked? You know, we can really think about that and dwell on that for a little bit of time because that's really important for our lives. Because what are we doing with God's plans? God, you know, I think if you're, if you're a follower of Christ, if you're a believer, you know when Christ gives you an unction to do something, right? You can sense it in your spirit that he's wanting you to speak something or say something to that person or do something this or give there or do that or whatever. And if I'm not quick to say, yes, Lord... If I'm not quick to say, yes, I'll do what you ask me to do, then I fall into the temptation to justify why I don't want to do it. And when we start getting into that, we're getting into Satan's territory because now we're allowing him to give us the easy plan, the thing that doesn't put me under so much stress and under such conflict. Does it make sense? So let me ask you this. How many times do we pray for God to bless our plans rather than ask God about his plans. Are you guilty of that? Yes, I think we all are. I think we all are guilty of the fact that we we make this plan and then we say, God, bless the plans that I've made. We feel a certain thing needs to be done. And so in our type A personality, for those that have a type A personality, we take charge and, and go after it, just like Peter did. And then we wonder why things don't go well for us sometimes. <laughs> and then we wonder, why are we struggling with this? Because I had this plan that I thought I had. It was a good plan, and I've asked God to bless it, and I'm struggling. You see, I think it's more important that we should pray first. Before we get into the problems, before we make our plans, rather than praying God to be the bulldozer and get everything out, 
of the problems out of my life that I had planned for. And I say, God, now come and bulldoze it out of my way and make my plan succeed. And God's saying, you don't have my mindset, Mike. You're not thinking the way I'm thinking. That's not a heavenly mindset. That's an earthly mindset. That's your selfish motivation. That's your selfish agenda. And it's not what I want to accomplish. So what's the source of most of my problems? What's the source of most of my problems? Well, I would say that the same temptation that both Satan and Peter brought to Jesus is the shortcut, the easy way around life. It's the me first attitude that typically causes me to focus on the things that I want to do. We love the world, I love the world, you love the world, and its ways most of the time over God's ways. That's the source of our problems. Because typically the ways of the world seem at the outset to be easier for us to grasp and understand and more attractive to us. We don't have to pray or get God's approval because the plans are ours to make. We make the plans that we want God to bless them. But the world's plans are not always God's plans. In 1 John 2.16, it says, For the world offers only a craving for physical pleasure, a craving for everything we see, and pride in our achievements and possessions. These are not from the Father, but are from this world. That's how temptation works in our life. And have you ever noticed that the things that tempt you are the things that, are, that you're already drawn to or attracted to? The things that tempt you are something that's already familiar to you. This is why it's easy to go ahead and make the plans without first bringing them to God to see if that's what God wants. Because we're already drawn to it. It's already in our nature to do that thing that is ungodly, that's not the plan that God has for us, and we're tempted to do that. So what I would suggest here is that we should do some serious praying before we jump into the plans of our life. Nothing's going to happen that quickly, folks, for the most part, that it's not wise for us first to stop everything from going on, slow down, pray about it. And this is not just a prayer over dinner. This is not, bless my food, God. Oh, by the way, God, give me your plans either. No, this is talking about diligent prayer. Just going into the closet by yourself when nobody knows you're praying about it and say, God, I have a question. I don't know what I should be doing right now. And before I jump into it on my own accord, would you please show up and show me what you want me to do? How many of us have done that? I think many of us have. Is it easy to do? Not always. It takes effort. It takes patience. It takes self-control on our part not to jump ahead and get ahead of God. This is the kind of prayer we should be praying. We should be praying something like this. God, show me your will in this situation. Show me, make it clear to me what you would have me to do. And I'm asking for your will to be done, not my own will. I, I don't want to have my plan fail. I want to have your plan succeed. And the only way to understand that is to pray. And we should pray the way the psalmist did. Psalms 139, 23, and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and see if there be, know my anxious thoughts. See if there be any wicked or offensive way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. The psalmist prayed that way. 
David prayed that way, and the writer of the Psalms prayed that way. Search me, God, and know my heart. You know it better than I do anyway. Now show it to me. And when you do show it to me, help me to have the fortitude to listen and to act. And if the temptation still lingers, then you have to deal with it. You have to deal with the temptation to do it your way over God's way. One of the best ways to overcome temptation is to remove it from your life. One of the best ways to avoid temptation is to remove it when you can. Temptation that you steadily keep in front of you, you will eventually succumb to. Something that you don't deal with, something that you just lay there, it lingers in your mind, that you're, not afraid, you're, you're too afraid to deal with it, eventually it's going to gain access over you. We're not strong enough in ourselves. But Jesus says, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, he says, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. In other words, guys, when the temptation comes, deal with it. Deal with it. Like Jesus did. Jesus dealt with it. Jackie, would you come, please? The best way to deal with temptation is to pray, is to pray Scripture. The best way to deal with temptation is to pray what the Bible says. I have a prayer that I pray on a regular basis. It's found in Colossians chapter 1, and I personalize it. Let me show you how I personalize it. This is the way Paul prayed for the, Coloss- for the church of Colossus. And this is the way I pray for myself. I say, Father, fill me with the knowledge of your will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to you, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. And it goes on to say, strengthen me with all power according to your glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who qualifies me to share in the inheritance of the saints of light. So when I pray this, I'm asking, first of all, to God, fill me with your will. Before I do anything else, God, fill me with your will. Here's the key words, according to spiritual wisdom and understanding. There is a worldly wisdom and understanding that is not heavenly. I don't want the worldly wisdom ruling my life because worldly wisdom will lead me to frustration and failure. God's wisdom, heavenly wisdom, Spiritual wisdom and understanding will lead me to fulfillment in Christ. So first of all, fill me with your wisdom. And then this will lead me to do the things that are worthy of being pleasing in your sight. That you will produce the outcome of good fruit that feeds not only me, but those around me. I have a responsibility to those that I am responsible over or those that I I, I, I'm with. My responsibility is to feed them godly things. And it also keeps me in a proper relationship with God that I can learn more about him on a regular basis with my intention of being more like Christ. I know that's a very lofty thing to say, isn't it? To be like Christ. But shouldn't that be our goal? Shouldn't that be our goal? 
This prayer also asks that God gives me power to make me strong in the face of adversity, that I can have the patience to endure it no matter what, that I'm not tempted to look for the shortcut and the easy way around it if it doesn't complete the mission of God's plan for my life. Do you know that God has a plan for your life? No matter how old you are, how young, how old, God has a plan and he wants to fulfill it. The only thing that stops him from fulfilling it is you. Satan can't unless you give him the authority to. So with this strength, it also brings joy. Even if I'm not happy. (laughs) I can be joyful and not happy. Happy is happenstance. Happiness is something that makes me happy in the moment. Joy is lingering. Joy is fulfilling. Joy says no matter what's going on today, in the middle of my disease or sickness or whatever the problem is, I have joy in the process even though I'm not happy about it. Do you want that? That brings peace. That brings eternal life peace. (laughs) Because no matter what happens, I know where I'm going. I know this is not the end all for me. It gives me peace. It gives me joy that I can have any inheritance of the saints of light. That means I'm going to have eternity in heaven. That's what that means. And this produces a thankfulness in my life that after all this, I'm qualified. Not in my own right, but in the fact that I've given my life to Christ and I've let his joy fill my heart with his joy and his purpose that I'm qualified to share any inheritance. Any inheritance in the inheritance of the saints of light. I love that prayer. Hmm. Get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, Satan, is a powerful command. And it's a prayer that I should use every day. And a prayer that you should use every day as well. Get behind me, Satan. What you bring to me is disaster. What you bring to me is failure. I want to focus on God's agenda. I want to come into agreement what God wants in my life. I don't want my selfish agenda, even though it makes me feel good for the moment, even though that's easy, even though that's the thing that doesn't challenge me. It's not what I want. And I pray that you don't want that as well. Listen, guys, God has great things in store for those that are diligent in seeking him and pursuing the things that we should be pursuing. Get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block. Let's pray. Father, I just come to you in Jesus' name. And Lord, there are so many things that we allow in our life that are stumbling blocks to us and ultimately stumbling blocks to you. Give us the ability to say the words and to mean them. Get behind me, Satan. Help us to understand that all you have is good in store for us if we'll just embrace it, if we'll just accept it. Help us to make the choice in our life to choose you over all things. That we would choose you over the things of this world. Not to say that we can't enjoy this world. That's not what I'm saying at all. 
but we would never let those things become our God. That we would never let the, the things of this world, the little enjoyments, the little pleasures of this world become what we serve. Help us not to be succumb, help us not to succumb to the temptations of the lying evil enemy that we have. That we would recognize that everything he tempts me with is failure. And never for my good. I pray that you strengthen us today. I pray that you give us resolve today. I pray, God, that you would have your way today in our hearts and our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Stand with me, if you will. Let's sing the song that Jackie and Tom are playing as we get ready to go to our homes.
Now listen, folks, as you go to your homes today, recognize that there are times in your life where you need to be drastic. You need to take a stand. You need to stand your ground against the enemy, and you need to boldly say to him, Get behind me, Satan. You have no authority in my life, and I'm not going to give you any authority in my life because I'm the only one that can do it, and I'm not doing it. So get behind me. I'm moving on. I'm taking my rightful position as a believer in Jesus Christ, and I am not going to put up with you. I'm not putting up with your lies. I'm not putting up with your nonsense. I know who I am. And I I know who I am in Christ. And I'm standing my ground. And you need to get, get in his face and take authority in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. Father, I pray right now in Jesus' name that you give us that sense of authority. Lord, as we walk out of this place, let us know who we are in Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the Son of the living God. And we are your children today because we've accepted you as our Savior today. And now we stand our ground against the enemy. We do not let him play his deceptive games in our life anymore. We walk out of here, new people, strong and victorious. Because we know who you are and we know who we are and we know that we have victory ahead because of your greatness and your grace. And we just give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Be blessed. Amen.